podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Red Inca, we're talking about the weird last 12 months of Irish cricket. So we only went and got the captain. Andrew Barberney and Irish cricket captain. We talk about beating South Africa, pinch blockers, losing to the US, the World Cup, and what beating the West Indians means to Irish cricket. So I've been going through the list. William Porterfield is your fielding coach, and he played against the West Indies. You won that series. If that isn't a microcosm of how weird Irish cricket has been over the last little while, it seems like the last year has been one of the weirdest years in Irish cricket. Has it felt that way as a player? Not really as a player. I think um, the only time it felt weird was the most recent uh, week we were away playing and I was sitting in the hotel room watching the guys go about it really well. As hard as it was, it was kind of really pleasing to see a couple of guys stand up and uh, put in performances to win games. But yeah, there's certainly been a lot going on sort of behind the scenes in terms of the coaching staff and people being appointed. And, you know, we have a head coach coming in about, uh, well, when we get back from our next trip, a new head coach will be in place. And so hopefully once the kind of summer starts, there'll be a lot more stability and we know where we are in terms of a coaching group. You talked before about COVID and how it's affected you and everything. Obviously, the USA West Indies series was sort of blighted by both of those things. As a professional athlete, like you're not really used to sitting on your bum, not doing much, but did it affect you psychologically? It did, man. I think it affected a lot of us. Um, I think it's more so the such regular testing regime of it all and not knowing whether you've got the virus or not. Certainly, you know, I had one bad day with the virus in terms of a, a really bad cold, but, you know, it was nothing compared to waiting for a test result or having to spend time in your room when you're not actually ill. So, we actually chatted as a group sort of after the first ODI when there was a couple more cases and, and there were guys genuinely concerned. We still had a, a number of tests to complete before we left and, and guys didn't want to test positive two days before traveling home and then having to stay out there. And so we had some good, honest chats and, and hopefully going forward, there will be a change. Um, you know, certainly things have changed a bit in Ireland in the last week in terms of restrictions. You know, I've said before that sometimes as players, you do feel like pawns on a chessboard and you're being moved around. And usually the best thing about being a professional cricketer is the touring. And unfortunately, at the moment, that's actually becoming the worst thing because you have to do so many tests and you're restricted to your hotel and, you know, you've no family out there with you like you usually would. So hopefully we might see a change in the next sort of six to 12 months when we go abroad. And just to explain it for everyone, you were in the USA then you're in the West Indies, you're in Ireland at the moment, and you're about to head to Oman. Have I got all those things right? I mean, that seems pretty crazy considering you're in a pandemic. Yeah, it does. We've actually probably played more than maybe we did pre-pandemic. If you look at the 50 over Super League, I think we've played maybe the most games out of everyone, which has been great for this team. It's a format that we've obviously had pretty good success and we've done well at. But yeah, certainly it was strange because the USA, there was a managed environment and you were able to go out and about as long as you weren't going inside venues, but we were still doing the same amount of testing. So I don't know whether that balance was right. Um, I think you've probably got to go one or the other. And then we moved on to the West Indies where it was a strict bubble. Guys were then picking up COVID, went in the bubble and it was carnage for a while. The fact that we managed to get out of it with a series win was amazing, all things considered. But yeah, two weeks at home and then off to Oman next Friday. So we'll have 
another test probably next Wednesday to get on the plane and, and we go again. Yeah, I don't want to see what the inside of your nose looks like. I mean, I didn't want to see what the inside of your nose looked like before, but yeah. even less so now. Um, it's interesting because you talk about how much cricket, and, and I certainly feel like Ireland's playing more cricket now than they were before. And it's interesting that you said the same. But I did work out recently that I've been to 66% of your test matches. And I haven't left the house in two years, mate, if we're being completely honest. Did you think being a test nation would be different than this? Did you think there would be more opportunities? Or is this kind of what Ireland thought might happen when they started test cricket? It's certainly not what I expected. I've been fortunate to be at 100% of the <laughs> test matches, although I wasn't really at the first one. You weren't um, at the first one. No. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, no, it, it's certainly not what I envisaged. Those two and a half days at Lords were what you expected test cricket to be. And that is, I think, certainly the highlight of my career was was getting to be there and, and take the field with the other 10 guys that on that occasion. And that's where you're like, okay, we finally got to where we've been striving to get to. And like you said, I know COVID has come into it, but you know everyone else who's a test member has played two or three times, at least since COVID, and we haven't. And look, it's a frustration that I've aired on numerous occasions and I'll continue to until we get those test matches because it's the best format. It's the purest format. There's so much test cricket on at the moment that you you know it's it's great to watch, but at the same time you want to be part of it. And and our careers aren't long. You know, I'm 31 now, and I like to think that I'm near or at the the peak of my career. And I want to be playing test cricket. I want to lead Ireland into a test match. I want to do all those things, but the opportunities aren't there. We're due to play one in Zimbabwe, I think, but who knows? The way it's gone, I'm not getting my hopes up just yet. Reverse swing is one of the most incredible parts of our game, but it doesn't happen by accident. It comes from a team effort where each and every member has a job to prepare the ball as well as they can, and then through that group effort, they can get that ball to move gracefully through the air. And you know all this because you're a smart cricket fan, and yet you go out on the field to play with your balls in disarray. If you treat your pubic hair in a shoddy manner, you won't be able to pick up as many wickets as you'd like. But Manscaped have the invention for you, the Lawn Mower 4.0, guaranteed to make your balls reverse. Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 is as graceful as a cover drive, as efficient as a Yorker in the deck. And the Lawnmower 4.0 is a true all-rounder, none of that bits and pieces nonsense. So if you're desperate for a breakthrough with your pubic hair, try Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code REDINCA. That's 20% off with free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com and use the code REDINCA. Let's get your balls going the other way. So I want to talk about this last year because I do think Irish cricket has been quite fascinating. Probably the ups and downs that you've had over the last year has been so wildly different. So you play South Africa at home. Both those games are at Malahide. There was supposed to be three. Was one washed out? Am I remembering yeah, that? Yeah, the first one? game was washed out. We batted for about 45 overs, I think. That's right, yeah. So next two games, so you win that first game and the elation of being able to win against South Africa at home in Malahide, that must have been huge for you guys. Uh, it was massive. I remember we had a group chat after the Netherlands series that we had lost prior to that. And we had just lost 2-1 in a series that, you know, we probably should have won. We we lost the first game by a run, but, you know, we didn't win. So I remember having a pretty honest chat. We had an open, honest chat and the talk around the group was still pretty positive. And there was certainly a belief that if we did play good cricket, we could compete with teams like South Africa. So leaving the Dutch series... There was still a confidence that we could do something like that, even though we naturally you'd be fairly low after losing any series, but particularly to a team that are ranked fairly close to you. So, yeah, we got to Malahide and, you know, I think we took a lot of confidence from the first game that was washed out. We got into a pretty good position. 
we were maybe I actually couldn't even tell you the score but we had batted pretty well and you know they had a pretty good seam attack and I think that just kind of sent a bit of confidence through the group and then the second game I think we got put in on a relatively greenish wicket and we got a score we got I think 280 or 290 and we bowled and fielded out of our skin and it was the first series we had had in Dublin with people back in the crowd so friends and family were there and it was just a really kind of special occasion and for the young group to go out and do what they did just showed that this team was capable of great things if we performed on a consistent basis that consistency is still probably lacking a bit and we need to try to work a way out to to get that but certainly those sort of performances and and even the England one before that the year before showed to the group and you know the players below us that we are able to kind of compete with the best on a regular basis. The England one, obviously, it was weird because it was kind of in the middle of the first COVID and, and England's second team. This was essentially South Africa's best team, obviously, you know, give or take a couple of players, but no team's ever completely full. It also felt like it was a proper tour, like they had come to play you and you had beaten them. It's not, it wasn't tacked on or, or anything like that. I was wondering, is there something about it felt, for you guys, it must have been incredible. You get to play in front of a crowd, you beat a major team in Malahide. But is it also starting to feel a little bit more like, no, we should beat these teams. So it's a normal thing for us to be able to do. We are a fully functioning team. We can't over-celebrate these wins the way that we probably did once upon a time. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I think that's what's been such a big bonus for this World Cricket League because previously you'd maybe play South Africa in one game. And, mm. and, and like that first ODI, it gets washed out and you don't really know if you can compete at that level. If you get three games against them, you have a chance, well, you have three chances. And, you know, the third game was, was a bit of a, a really kind of disappointing one because we'd done so well in the second game. But even someone like Simi Singh coming and scoring 100 and batting at eight, confidence that that gave the group as well. But I think just having those three games, knowing that you're going to get three quality games against the top opposition rather than just one game in May, maybe one in July and one in August, if you're lucky, it's hard to kind of put something together or put a performance together as a group. So, you know, I think that's why I'm such a fan of, of the Super League. And it's a shame that it's, it's going to change next year, but it certainly has been an up and down Super League for us. We've had some amazing days and then some pretty poor three games or two games in the series. So that South Africa series was also the time you started using Andy McBrien at number three, of which I don't know if you've seen my piece, but I'm... I did. I, my, my dad read it as well yesterday and he was talking <laughs> to me about it. The whole thing's so fascinating because I can see why. And I also know that obviously Gary Wilson has an influence there and that he's been doing it for, you know, regionally as well. But the whole thing is so bizarre that you've ended up with a top six with two essentially frontline bowlers. Are you not even worrying about that? Are you just going, these are our six best batters? Or how tactical are you getting with all of this? Are you trying to make sure that you have more bowling options in the team? Or what's the thinking behind Andy McBride in, in the top order? Well, it came about in that South Africa series, the morning of the second game, William Porterfield had had an infection in his finger, in his thumb. And like, I think it was really bad in the first game, but he kind of battled through and got a 50. It was remarkable. Like You'd want to see the size of his thumb. It got really bad in that morning. And it was... Like I woke up to the message from Graham Ford and William Porterfield at half seven or eight saying, you know, I'm no good. Ford was like, we need to fill this gap here. So it was last minute. So it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was tactical or planned. We didn't want to shift the the kind of Harry Tector was at four and he's finding his way and he's doing really well at four. We didn't want to nudge him up 
No, I was happy to open because at three, I, I think it's similar enough. So I didn't want to kind of adjust the middle order because they were fairly settled. You know, you have Curtis Camfer coming in at five. So we thought the four and five was pretty solid. And you had Andy McBride, who was probably down to about eight. And I remember texting him straight away going, you know, do you fancy batting three? I know Andy pretty well. I know his game pretty well. He's probably too good to be batting nine, as he's probably showed. But it was really just, I thought, would be a quick fix for one game. And Andy's response was actually, do you want me to open? That was his first reply. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I'll open. I'll go tough. You just go to three. And he played really well. He got 30 odds. And I remember he had hit a couple of boundaries off Shamsi. And, you know, I kind of said, this is a good over. Like, keep going. And he said something about a reverse sweep. And I was like, don't know about that. And eventually he went for it, missed it, it was LB. But he had played really well and done the job really well um, coming in at three and got 30 odd. And he obviously did it against South Africa again in that third game. I don't think he went as well, but it came round to Jamaica and Sterlow obviously missed the first game. So it was literally because I didn't know I was going to get COVID. I was like, this is for one game. So Scry, you go up to three again and, and just do the job you did during the summer. I played really well again, got 30 odd and headbutted one and then went off so and then I obviously went down and that was just the because he'd done it pretty well and the guys were playing well around about four and five and um we just thought that that made sense whether it'll be a long-term thing I'm not sure but certainly if we do have an emergency we know that he can come in and do that job really well is there a worry slightly about the depth of your batting that you have had to sort of I know that you know I mean, well, Porterfield sort of half retired, half not retired, half coach situation. Obviously, you and Sterlo, uh, Sterlo's probably got a couple more years and you've got quite a few more years. But is there a bit of a worry with the batting depth in general, do you think, in that side? It just doesn't look as solid to me as I feel an Irish lineup normally would. Yeah, look, and, and the Irish lineup that I suppose you're probably thinking of featured Niall O'Brien, Ed Joyce, Kevin O'Brien, Gary Wilson, serious players, guys mm. who week in, week out, we're doing well at county cricket. But we've got to find these young guys and we probably don't have as good a, an A program as we should to kind of make sure that the gap is bridged. So we have to find ways to make sure that this team is scoring big runs. We've done that pretty well, I think. Sterl obviously had an amazing year last year. That makes a big difference. He does make a big difference to the side when he's going well. George Dockrell is someone who's come in and kind of transformed his game into a batter. We have players like Gareth Delaney who we're still trying to find out what he can give us in a 50-over kind of format. But I think we certainly have maybe seven or eight solid good batters who can do a job. It's just making sure that through the years that there's maybe 15 you can choose from or or more. And and that is having a, a really good A system in place so that guys are going week in, week out and playing against top A teams and, and doing well. And you can bring them in whenever fit. But yeah, look, it's, it's, there's no secret the batting maybe isn't as deep as it was, but certainly that West Indies series, when you see people like Harry Tector doing what he did, what Curtis Camfer can do, I think there is a bit more depth, but we certainly have to try to make it as deep as possible. So the South African series obviously ends up one all, but as you said, it feels like a proper series for the first time. You guys win at home in front of a crowd. Next sort of major thing that you're involved in is the World Cup. So you're in that weird thing that the ICC have the pre-tournament tournament part of the World Cup first game starts brilliantly you basically win the first game in four balls because of Curtis Kampfer who I think if my memory serves me correct he had like 20 or 30 professional wickets in his life before he took four wickets in four balls <laughs> you've been involved in a lot of T20 cricket obviously I've worked in it as well that almost feels like not a fluke game but like you can't replicate that anyway but it, you leave that game on a bit of a high I'm assuming 
Absolutely. We knew it was a crucial game. You know, the history with ourselves and the Dutch and T20 cricket had lent towards them in previous years. It was interesting going into the World Cup and I remember looking down the 11 and I remember thinking there was only two, maybe two players or three players who had played in a World Cup in T20 cricket. That was my first game in a T20 World Cup. I hadn't played in 2016. I was on the bench and I think that was the last one it was, yeah, in India. Mm. So there was nerves around, no doubt. It was a huge game. Our T20 form had been inconsistent and it has been for a while. It obviously showed in that tournament. But certainly that Curtis over was like they had built a bit of a partnership. I think Ackerman and I can't remember who else it was. But yeah, I mean, when you get four wickets in an over, you're doing well to lose a game from there. So we chased a pretty low total comfortably enough and we were set up nicely for the rest of the week. Um, and yeah, look, I suppose everyone knows how it went in the end, but certainly the confidence was high after that kind of first game. I mean, it flows into the next game. You had Sri Lanka eight for three. You were probably hoping for, I mean, I can't think of too many teams who win a T20 game where they're eight for three. Did you lose that game in the field or was it just the sort of Hasaranga and, and the spinners that got you? Yeah, did we lose in the field? I think we could have maybe been a bit more attacking and that's maybe partly down to me. I think at eight for three, we maybe could have gone for the jugular and we didn't. But I suppose we were still chasing a total we thought was chaseable on a pretty good wicket under lights. We knew that they had a couple of quicks and Hasaranga, who's who's a high quality T20 bowler. The chase just never got going. I think we lost Sterling Kev in the power play, if I'm not mistaken. And we were always playing catch up from there. It's just a shame because at the halfway stage, we felt that that was a chaseable total. But certainly at eight for three, we, you know, we probably, and, you know, I kind of put my hand up, we could have maybe attacked a bit more and maybe taken a couple of wickets and killed the game there. That Sri Lankan middle order wasn't particularly well known at that point as well. Did that play into you just thinking, well, the, if you come in against a Sri Lankan middle order that you know a lot about, you probably back yourself a little bit more. But it felt in this particular situation like there wasn't a... I mean, it wasn't until halfway through the tournament we all realised that they were building something good. Did that have any effect on you? or? Look, we did our homework, but at the same time, at eight for three, the juices are flowing. And I think it was Hasarango came in and that kind of threw us off guard a bit. And he started playing really well and, and just completely counterattacked. And I suppose that's T20 cricket. When you play against those top teams who play a lot of T20 cricket, you have to expect that. And, and maybe we could have slowed it down a bit and, and thought a bit more clearer, but I think they played pretty well as well. Um, you have to kind of give them credit. But, you know, I think we bowled and fielded. I mean, we could have bowled and fielded a lot better than we did. But like I said, at the halfway point, we were still pretty happy with how we'd gone, even though we had the made for three at the start. Namibia game, obviously, probably not one you want me to bring up too much. But that game, you look tentative to me in that game. Like, I would still say, if you guys played them 20 times, I'd still say that you would come out on top 13 or 14 times, like that you're a better all-round side than Namibia. I think Namibia is great. They're what I call a low-mistake team. They, they just wait for the other team to make mistakes. But just felt like you guys were just a little bit timid. Was that just a pressure thing? Or did they just maybe get a little bit ahead in the game early on against you? Look, it was certainly the way we started. I think we started really well and the, the platform was sort of set and kind of from myself down to the, the rest of the guys, no one really went to the run of ball and that was just crucial and we weren't smart with how we batted. You know, whether it's, we thought that we had to just score boundaries to keep the score going on a wicket that was really slow and tired, it was a sort of wicket where you go six or seven and over and then go hard at the end, just make sure that the scoreboard was ticking. But we went through a phase and, and that's when I was out there where the scoreboard just looked like it wasn't moving and that's a hard place to be in, especially in such a big game like that. You do feel the, the kind of extra pressure and... But in saying that, we got to a total that 
after the power play with the ball, we thought that we were really in the game. There was a huge DRS decision we didn't go for. It was all happening because Mark had got injured as the ball. I was at midwick and I was like, that looks very adjacent. Two or three lads were just saying, oh, he's hit it. And then Sparky was injured. So I was like, okay, he's hit it. Are you all right, Sparky? And then I just remember hearing from fine leg, Kev roaring, oh, it's hitting all three as he's looked at the screen. And I was just like, oh, this might not be our day. We have to take a hat off to them. I thought Erasmus, their skipper, batted really well. He just played the situation so well. And they had someone like David Visa to come in and just to kill the game when he did. But that was a really low point. That week post the World Cup, I certainly I didn't watch a game for 10 days. I remember my fiance was working from home and she always has the cricket on in the background to just kind of keep her company. And I was like, well, you can put on the football highlights because we're not watching the cricket. And it was really tough because I've been part of a a World Cup in 2015 and they're so special and the platform it is for some of our younger guys and to be on and, and play against the best in the world it would have been brilliant but it didn't happen and that's the game and the ups and downs like you said that year was just it was surreal and the ups and downs we had some really amazing highs but we kind of finished off the year with that really low one the other thing is like for Irish cricket before Every World Cup was the biggest thing in the world, which I suppose the World Cup should be, but because you were playing so little regular cricket against big teams at other times, because as you say, even when you play against the big team, it's quite often one game, they're coming out to England and they tackle one day or on, it might even rain out. Usually World Cups are very big. This isn't quite the same now because you play so much cricket at the moment, you're used to playing bigger teams, but I would assume that for Irish fans, you're still building towards something. So to have such a down, to, to not qualify and also to have a team like Namibia beat you to that qualification must have been almost a double blow. Yeah, it certainly is different now. We play a lot of fixtures. We probably don't play enough T20 cricket. And you talk about the big teams. I think for us, particularly in T20 cricket, we need to play as much cricket as possible. And that doesn't matter who it's against. A lot of the teams now are, are catching up in T20 because... You know, naturally, that is the format that they prioritise. We weren't prioritising T20 because of the World Super League. That's shifted slightly now because of the change in format of the Super League and the relegation and, and all that's out the window now. So there's no doubt the 50 over cricket probably was prioritised over the last year or two. But we've got to get better at T20 cricket because that game is only moving quicker and there's only going to be more opportunities and, and leagues around the world for guys to play in and we are a confident team, but certainly in T20 cricket, there is that inconsistency that we've shown in the last 12 to 18 months, probably since the pandemic. We didn't play any T20 cricket in 2020 post-pandemic. We played Zimbabwe and South Africa last year in T20 cricket, and then we had the build-up to the UAE, but we need to be playing a lot more. And, and it, like I said, it doesn't matter who it's against as long as the guys are playing consistent T20 cricket to know how to do their roles on a more regular basis rather than just kind of having a few fixtures here and a few fixtures there. So that's why I think we have three games leading into the qualifiers next week. So hopefully once that starts, we'll be able to hit the ground running. Other than playing a lot, which obviously is very helpful, is there anything else you think you need to do before the next World Cup? I think, you know, our own intro structure needs to improve. We need to have more games on better wickets. That's something that I've been talking about for a long time. We were fortunate at the back end of 2020 that a few of us were able to go over and play in the blast. That was brilliant. Myself, Gareth Delaney, Paul Sterling was there anyway. But those sort of experiences, we have Josh Little, who has just started playing in a couple of the leagues now, and he's getting better and better. And in my opinion, he could be Ireland's greatest ever bowler. He's got that much talent and that much skill. And he's, 
you know, he works very hard and he's a student of the game. So we need to keep creating cricketers like that who, you know, T20 cricket is their format. Um, a lot of us were brought up in 50 over cricket and and that's where we kind of learned our trade. And, you know, a few of us went over to county cricket and played longer formats. And we maybe, particularly younger guys, I think they just need to be exposed to T20 cricket more regularly. It doesn't matter if that's international or domestic, just need to be playing in, in that format as much as possible. The next series that you played in, oh, sorry, it's probably not the next series. You guys have played in so many series. I'm probably skipping about 30 series here. The next sort of major one where I was paying attention, which are the only ones that matter, Andy, as yeah. you know, yeah. was the USA series. It felt to me at that stage, and that's really the reason I got you on the podcast, is you, know, you win a game against South Africa, you have the bad World Cup, you then struggle against the USA, and then obviously go on against the West Indies. The USA obviously is not the same USA that we saw even two or three years ago. I think they did well against Scotland a couple of years ago with a bunch of other players, but obviously it's building towards something else, towards minor league cricket, major league cricket, and all these sorts of things. But at the same time, for a test-playing nation, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth to lose games to the USA, isn't it? It is, and I've been playing in Irish teams where the roles were reversed and we were the team beating the full member and surprising them. It was certainly a pretty scrappy game. The first game, uh, we just never got going. We started well with the ball and, and they put on a, a ridiculous partnership. And I think our, the back 10 overs went for over 100. And we just, that's kind of been our Achilles heel. I think when we've been on tours is we never really start well and we kind of get into the groove like two games, maybe three games in. And it's something we try to address and we need to keep addressing because it doesn't seem to get any better. The second game was actually a really big win for us because it was a proper scrap and it was kind of reminded me of the Irish teams that I grew up watching that scrapped for every single run, whether with bat or in the field. And it's something that maybe, I wouldn't say has gone missing, but when you grow up playing against your fellow associates or your fellow kind of minnow, I don't like that word, but you grow up playing Scotland and Holland, the teams you've always played with, you absolutely scrap and I kind of, remember watching Irish teams with William Porterfield and Trent Johnson and John Mooney, proper scrappers. And I don't think we'd ever been in that scrap and it would have been exactly what we needed in that Namibia game. And I remember mentioning it after the game. I was like, we're going to play a lot of these games. We have to go out and we have to make sure that we scrap for every run because we're nowhere near the finished article in T20. We don't have the hitters that other teams have, but we can have that passion and we can have that pride about playing for Ireland. And that's why that second game was really pleasing because we were down and out at one stage. I think they started really well with the bat and we really needed to scrap and it took a run out from Curtis to kind of get us going and Curtis puffed the chest out. And and I know it was a USA game and people in Ireland wouldn't have known that game was going on, but they know the West Indies game and the South Africa games are going on. But I think for the group, that second US win was quite a big win for us, certainly from my opinion anyway. It's also weird if you think of the situation of Irish cricket. A, most of you guys did grow up watching a team that was nowhere near as professional as this, that was mostly county players and top-up players from local cricket. Obviously, you're now the test captain, so it's an honour. That's a, that's a huge thing to Not be. yes, not yes. Well, sorry, you will be the test captain when there is a test played. <laughs> um, you know, if you can hang on uh, to that <laughs> next one. But, but you know, it's, it's really weird because you're in a position now, and this is great for world cricket. But you're in a position now where the strongest associate teams can still ruin your day, but you can also beat some of the uh, more major teams than you. It's really interesting that you can sort of punch up and punch down. It's actually hard to, for you guys to get a real thought process of where you are as a team at some stage. You know, to beat South Africa, I know it's two different formats, but to beat South Africa in one format and to lose to the USA in the other one, 
you and I follow enough cricket now to know that those are both reasonable results. But psychologically, as a team, you must be going, how the hell do we beat South Africa like that and then come up against the USA and go like that? Like, is that play with your minds a little bit as a team? I think it's kind of a testament to how the game is growing and how teams are just getting better. And, you know, there's always this kind of test bracket and the rest and the associates like certainly being on the border of that you understand the team like scotland holland oman papua new guinea namibia these teams are good cricket teams and and we're a good cricket team but you know if we don't turn up if we don't play good cricket we're going to lose to these teams and the guys are fully aware of that and they're also aware of if we play good cricket against the good teams we'll also win so like i said we're on that sort of border but you know we have no right to win any game of cricket so you know, rankings and all that and expectation. I really do hate the, you know, they're a full member, they're a test nation, they should be winning. But a lot of these teams we play have better infrastructures than we do and are playing probably more cricket or T20 cricket than we are. But certainly we do have players that should be performing better at that level. But I really enjoy the challenge. I enjoy the challenge of one week going out and facing some of the best bowlers in the world and then going to a place like Oman and playing their spinners. And like, it's, it's great. It's such a unique job that we get to go to so many parts of the world and and see the progression of teams and they're just getting better and we've got to get better and the guys understand that and and hopefully over the next year or two we can kind of show people that consistency that we're craving let's get to the good bit then west indies tour we've already talked about it the covid and bringing your coach off the bench and all the sort of the nonsense that went on as scrappy and as good as some of the island teams were back in the day, if they had to play in those sorts of conditions, you know, you would expect that a team like the West Indies would probably still have rolled you. Now, obviously, you had some incredible luck when it came to the toss, but you still dominated that series. Did anything change in that series? Is it just some things are coming together? Or was it just, you know, maybe even just a bit of luck? You know, was there any different feeling going into that series than you've had in some of the others? That's a good question. I think 50 over cricket, like I said, is our best format at the moment, out of the two formats. It's a format that we know pretty well. The guys know their roles really well. And we have fairly established players now in terms of, you know, Sterling, myself, have nearly played, well, I've played maybe 80 games. Andy McBride, George Dockrell, like Mark Adair. We're building something pretty good in 50 over cricket. So we knew that we could beat them in a series and, and we made sure that that message was clear from the off. It's funny, looking back, you know, we got released from quarantine the night we won the third game and I remember sitting down with a couple of lads and we were actually talking about how we should have really won the series 3 now from the position we were in in the first game, needing 100 with nine wickets left. So coming back from that real disappointment and then for games to be postponed, for us to lose players, we were one COVID case from... Gary Wilson putting the gloves back on because Neil Rock had to come in and we had no other keepers. We may even have got Niall down from the commentary box. Um, <laughs> but that's the state it was in. And, and it was almost so chaotic that the guys were just so keen to get out and play cricket and get out of the hotel and get out from the, the COVID hotel or whatever we were calling it. And yeah, I think it was just the belief. We got over the line in the second game and it was certainly... Like I said, the first game, we fully thought that we could beat them. And, and that, that's something that I've, you know, I've been in Irish teams playing higher ranked teams and where that maybe hasn't been there. And for it to be there from a young group, you know, people like Harry Tactor, the way he played, Josh Little, it just kind of clicked and there was huge confidence taken from that. And it's just such a shame that 
we didn't pull off a couple of wins in other series where we let ourselves down a bit and we could be in with a real chance of qualifying automatically. But I think that's still in our hands. So that's obviously a good thing to take. How did that go in Ireland? Obviously in a World Cup, right? We know when Ireland wins a World Cup game against any major nation, but even the smaller nations, there's always a ripple in Ireland of what happens. This is a bilateral series. It's away from home. Good time zone, though, to be fair, for the Irish fans. So <laughs> they certainly got to see it. But how did that go down? West Indies cricket is, you know, not in its strongest state. It's probably, it, you know, you talk about your best format being one-day cricket. Their worst format's probably one-day cricket at the moment. They're, they're probably best in test cricket and, and, and then T20 cricket. But how did that go down with the Ireland fans? Because it just felt like a historic moment uh, for Irish cricket. Yeah, it did. And for it to happen at Sabina Park, where the, the whole kind of adventure, you know, there's been cricket in Ireland and Irish cricket teams bef way before Sabina Park in 2007. But that was the catalyst for where we are now, earning money to play cricket professionally in, in the country. I remember chatting to my dad and, and actually my future father-in-law, and they grew up listening to West Indies on the radio, listening to the great West Indies teams going to England and, and hammering them. And and for us as an Irish team to actually go to the West Indies and beat them in a series, it w I think it's been quite hard to comprehend for a couple of Irish fans because it's such an amazing achievement. It's something that you know, we haven't had too many opportunities to win away from home in series, particularly against you know Afghanistan. We've had pretty good rivalry over the years, but but a team and like the West Indies, you mentioned it there, that it's not their strongest format, but it's still the West Indies. And... You know, when you think about all the great West Indies players and teams, for us to go over there with, you know, a pretty deflated squad and, and do what we did is just, I'd like to think that there'll be a knock-on effect in Ireland in terms of participants, but we'll only probably see that throughout the summer. I remember going down to Cork before Christmas to one of the clubs and helping them open their kind of indoor centre. And there's a huge love for the game in the country. And I've always said that we're in the best position to show off cricket in Ireland because we're on the world stage regularly. So if we can produce results and, and series wins like that, it's only going to have a knock-on effect. Other than playing a test match, what are the sort of goals for Irish cricket this year? Well, first and foremost, it's to make sure that we're in Australia in October. I think it's October or end of September. You know, I went to a World Cup in 2015 and in Australia and still to this day is one of the great places to tour, in my opinion. There's a huge Irish contingent in Australia. So... You know, that's first and foremost, that's top of the list, in my opinion, out of everything we have this year. We're still not 100% sure what our fixture list looks like. You know, there's talks of series. We're due to play the New Zealand and Bangladesh in the World Super League at home. So certainly the confidence we can take from the West Indies tour, if we can turn those two over in Dublin, that'd be a huge achievement. But I don't think we can look too far past the next kind of month because that dictates a lot of what's going to happen in the next year. If we qualify for the World Cup in Australia, we'll potentially have a lot of T20 fixtures leading up to that. If we don't, God forbid, I'm not sure what will happen in terms of T20 cricket this summer, but certainly I'd, I think it'd be naive to look anywhere past um, Oman over the next month. There's certainly no more like-for-like -like situation than Oman when you're trying to qualify for a tournament in Australia. So that's exactly, uh, yeah. very, very similar conditions. If you do qualify, it will help you so much playing all that cricket <laughs> in Oman. Very much like Gabba. Thanks for coming on, man. Is there anything... Actually, I just want to ask you one last question just before you go. We talked about this on a previous podcast. You were very honest about how it took you a long time to get going with your career. Over the last couple of years, you've been in, in brilliant form. Just you personally... 
in that World Cup, you clearly weren't at your best. I don't know what your strike rate was. I'm not even going to say. Even if I remembered it, I wouldn't say it because it, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't good. For you personally, as a player, you talked about hitting your peak. What are your, some of your goals outside of just being a captain and just making runs again? My goals are just to keep scoring as many runs as possible. You know, I kind of look at hundreds. As, when 50 over cricket, I want to score as many hundreds as possible. I think Paul Sterling is certainly leading that in terms of hundreds, and I want to get to where he's got to. And I think just contributing to wins. And I've always said that as a captain, I want my bat to do the talking. Like you said, it wasn't good enough in the World Cup in the UAE. But, you know, I've been working really hard at T20 cricket. It's the kind of format where I feel like I need to kind of play as much as possible to give myself a bit of rhythm and, and form. And, you know, I've had pretty good success in Oman, so hopefully I can continue to do that. But certainly just, you know, we've said it as a group, winning games for Ireland with the batter with the ball, there's no better feeling. So... As long as I'm kind of contributing to wins, I'll be fairly happy, I think. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. <laughs>